What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to the Circle of Insight Foreign Affairs where you will receive a daily briefing on national security news from around the world. Let's get started. Here's your host, Dr. Carlos. Welcome, everyone. Well, I'm really excited. We have a great guest today. Her name is Holly S. McKay, and she's written a great book. I mean, I'm really, this is a really a great book, Only Cry for the Living, Memos from Inside the ISIS Battlefield. And it's really a powerful book. So I highly recommend it. You can get it on Amazon.com. You can follow her on Twitter or Instagram at Holly S. McKay. That's M-C-K-A-Y. So who is Holly? You're probably asking. Well, I'll tell you. She's a foreign policy expert and war crimes investigator. She was an investigative and international affairs war journalist for Fox News Digital for over 14 years, where she focused on warfare terrorism and crimes against humanity and if you follow her at all on social media like i have for the last few years you won't be disappointed she gives them some incredible insight incredible reporting for fox and for others and she does a great job and i can't really excited to talk to her about her new book again only for only cry for the living so let's go ahead and welcome holly mckay to the show welcome holly thank you for having me thank you for being here uh, this is a powerful book. You know, I've always followed you at least for like four or five years. And I wonder, when is she going to write a book? When is she going to write a book? So what motivated you to write this book? Well, this was really a labor of love. So sort of between 2014 and, and 2018, 2019, I spent a lot of time in the Middle East and really wanted to understand from that very ground, raw point of view, how these things come to be and who's affected and the sort of the mindsets that come into it. So it was a, you know, a long labor of love of sort of collecting probably of about 30 notebooks stored up right now, just from that era. And I just wanted to talk to as many people as possible and try to paint a picture for people that they won't necessarily get out of a news article or from a policy briefing and just really bring people to the battlefield with me. And I I hope that, people will sort of gain that very first-hand insight into, into Iraq and into the development of ISIS. That's the great thing about it. Because the interesting thing is when we see the stuff on the media, we get a lot of the Hollywood stuff, I guess you could call it, right? The bombings and the murders, but you don't really see the stories and how many people it affected. Absolutely. And, and it's sort of, I do incorporate the military aspect is sort of what we as, as journalists call the bang-bang. But as a journalist and a writer, I was just much more interested in the people on the ground and how they live through these things, how they survive these things, how they teach it to their children. When do they decide to go home? What do they decide to leave with? Uh, what kind of help they're receiving? And it's just, it's those intricacies, I think, uh, that are part of human nature. And we can all find things that we relate to in that. And I just, I really met some of the most extraordinary survivors imaginable when I was there. I imagine, I know watching you on Instagram and on Facebook, you were right in the middle of things. You made a great point too about the children. You made a lot of great points, but 
I know with some of the research that I do on trauma, that's amazing because these children are going through such a tough time. Can you share some of your stories and what you found out? Yeah. And I think the children, it's just, it's fascinating, especially when I would go back to revisit them throughout time. And there's one story that I highlight in the book by a little girl by the name of Hala that I met. And she was living in this abandoned building in the northern part of Iraq in the Kurdish region. And she was a Yazidi child who came from Sinjar. And when I first met her, not long after the ISIS invasion and the family had fled, I just, there was something about her. She just, she had this extraordinary air about her. And I just immediately was captivated. And I found out that she had carried her older sister's body who was killed by ISIS literally through the mountains of Syria down into Iraq. And it was just extraordinary because there's this, this idea of dignity and her, her big sister had been killed in a hospital and ISIS had, had come over or she was actually wounded and ISIS had come and taken over the hospital. And then she was basically left to die. It was, it was terribly sad, but this idea of dignity that the family was not going to leave her body there under this terrible occupation. And it's those stories. And anyway, over time, I would go back to this abandoned abandoned little place in the middle of the city where these families were living and and find Haller. And each time it was just, it was like this little girl had just became more and more lost. And, and toward the you know my, my end of my trip, I ended up not being able to find her, but that was just devastating to me uh-huh. to see this sort of bright girl and just watch that decline into sort of the trauma and and realizing that there was no home to go back to and there was really no life beyond this small confines and I I just found that experience to be to be really sad and and it's one of many. I imagine yeah it's a powerful story and that's one of the things you mentioned when you look at Syria when you look at Iraq and some of these towns it's hard to fathom here in America especially or some other countries because you've seen people's lives are lost which is a tragedy as well but when your whole town is gone all your memories are gone that is so bizarre to me it's so overwhelming absolutely and this idea that you can never can never really go back can you ever trust anybody again and and something that sort of kept coming up to me throughout it was that so many of the Yazidis and, and other minority groups were saying that it was their neighbors that turned on them and these people that they'd shared bread with and, and their lives with for, for decades had suddenly become ISIS and, and turned on them. And so this sort of sense of distrust was just so raw. And so it was just so hard to wrap my head around. And so you have these people who are torn between, do we stay in this camp that has no aid, that has no help, that life is just extremely tough, or do we risk it and go back knowing that in a second, everything can be ripped from us again. And that's that's the real tragedy. And especially now that ISIS has sort of fallen off the headlines of the news, the situation is even worse at a lot of these camps and things because they're no longer getting the donations and the help and the aid groups are, are focused their attention elsewhere. And these people are really just left with nothing and, and nowhere to go back to. And it's, it's just sad. As soon as these conflicts no longer become newsworthy, that that the, the help does go away. That's an excellent point, right? Out of sight, out of mind. And uh, unfortunately, ISIS look, takes advantage of the situations. But again, I mean, there's still a few remnants left, but unfortunately, they can start up trouble pretty quickly if they wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the U.S.-led coalition did a really great uh, job, led by the Iraqis as well, in eliminating ISIS and the SDF, of course, in Syria, but the cells definitely exist. There are still, you know, almost on a daily basis, 
uh, forces there are finding weapons arsenals hidden in different towns. And, and ISIS definitely still has a presence. It doesn't obviously have it, the foothold it had, you know, when it took over a place like Mosul, but they're still there. They still very much exist and, uh, and they're still bombing and, and causing a lot of problems. And, and equally with that, now we have the, the problem of the Iranian-backed militias known as the, the PMF or the PMU. And they're there. And, and to me, at this point, that's, you know, almost a, or if not a bigger threat than ISIS uh, to Iraqis and to U.S. interests in the region. So you've got this sort of double whammy from all sides that Iraqis are faced with. And, and who becomes the victim of that? That's the people, the civilians that are just simply trying to survive. And they're the ones that have to, to deal with this day in and day out. And it's, it's, it's an awful tragedy. Really amazing. Iraq is such a complex place. And there's so many different ethnicities there, different cultures. What is it, 40 or 50 or maybe more than that? Yeah, so, so many. Yeah. I was always baffled by by different groups that I'd meet, the Kakis and you know, the different elements of the Shabaks and Zoroastrians. And you you just you're constantly meeting just different groups of people that have these sort of incredible rituals and stories. And um, you know, there was always always that sort of very rich cultural element. Iraq is an extraordinary place. Yeah, it's sad it's going through so much right now over there. And one of the things I wanted to, to talk about too is you mentioned Halar. What are some of the things you saw in regards to resilience? Because you have to have some level of resilience to be able to survive this and continue life when life gets to whatever normal is. I'm not sure what normal would be over there anymore. Yeah, that was the remarkable thing about it. You know, in all the heaviness, I just met some of the most extraordinary people and they were they were very much the ordinary people and they were forced into these extraordinary situations and just became the most extraordinary people. As I said with Hella, you know, carrying her her sister's body and through Syria and just things like that, you know, thank God in the US, we, we never have to sort of think about having to deal with those things. But but when it's when you're faced with it and when these people have no choice, they really are just some of the most remarkable people, the the women that will do whatever it takes to to go and find food to feed their family. I remember there was one situation in a camp where a woman was pregnant and she was really, really overdue and they didn't have any medical help. And so it was a matter of all the people kind of coming together to raise money, to sell the trinkets and the TVs and whatever else that they'd been given to, to find the money to make sure that she could go to hospital and the baby could be safely delivered. So you see this great sense of community, of people supporting each other. Same with the Yazidis. Uh, ISIS, unfortunately, was was giving them these astronomical sums and saying, you know, you can bring back your your wife or your sister or your mother if you pay $15,000. And of course, these are really poor people and illiterate and they don't have that. But you see this sort of sense of community of people coming together and they'll they'll do whatever it takes to to raise that money, to haggle for that money and the for the rescue operation to to take place to get their family back. And And for me, that was you know, one of the most, I guess, profound memories that I have was being in a situation in Sinjar City, which was completely uh, demolished in the liberation and, and nobody could live there. It wasn't safe. But a poor family I found who moved back and it was a young father with two young children. And he was telling me that he received a call from his, uh, his wife's captor who said, if you pay X amount of dollars, uh, we'll let her go. And he just he spent months wrangling the money and people were giving him money in the community. And then when he called the captor to say that he had the money, the price had doubled and he wasn't able to, to bring his wife and, and the mother of his children home. And that was just so, it was so deeply sad to me because it was one of the situations where I felt especially helpless because 
I couldn't help him. I couldn't give him money because that would be technically classified as funding terrorism because that money was going through different hands and eventually into ISIS hands. But it was a helpless situation. What what can you do? And that was sort of uh, something that I I really took away with because it was something that I knew that I really couldn't do anything to help him. And that was it was just really deeply sad to kind of see that trauma. Holly, if I may change the focus a little bit to you, <laughs> because this was a um, it's an amazing journey you took there. Five or six years in these areas. This is not the um, safest areas in the world here you're exploring. How did it change you? Because it must have impacted you in some capacity. Yes, in many, in many capacities. And I've really had to learn to compartmentalize uh, my life there and my life when I come back to the US and really appreciate the freedoms and, and the life that I have here. But yeah, I mean, it was an extraordinary journey. I think when I started out, uh, you know, maybe I was a little bit more naive and, and, and took risks that I look back on and I think, oh my God, I, I wouldn't do that now, um, you know, with the benefit of hindsight. But yeah, it was this sort of the approach that I took was very under the radar. I didn't go in with security teams. I basically didn't even take a laptop because I was so worried about hackers and things getting into it. So I, I had my phone and and uh, my body armor and a backpack and, and just really relied on, on trustworthy locals to take care of me and to sort of take me from A to B. And you just, you develop these really fast bonds with people and they become like your family. And so it's always the hardest part for me was sort of leaving them because yeah, they, they do, they risk everything they can to protect you. And, and certainly uh, the Peshmerga and, and Iraqi army and SDF want nothing to happen to a foreign journalist. And so they kind of go above and beyond to protect you. And in a way that that did make me feel a little guilty too, because I didn't want them to take their eye off the ball and take their eye off the front line to protect me, but they're an extremely uh, hospitable people. And so I just, I was so grateful for the opportunity to to sit on the floor and share tea and just for them to allow me into their lives and sort of tell me these very personal stories. I just, I think it was an, it, it was extreme privilege. Amazing. Amazing. Very enriching. No doubt about that. And it's interesting because ISIS took the targeting of journalists to another level. Um, We've seen it in Mexico, obviously, with the cartels and whatnot as, as they pressure their journalists down there. Um, but ISIS really, they highlighted it because I remember 20 years ago in the Gulf Wars and things of that nature, there was a more of a respect for journalists. You just didn't target them. And ISIS right. was targeting journalists and making sure yeah. everybody realized it. Um, so I guess my question would be, did you have any close calls, any harrowing moments at all? Um, I mean, I think that there was, you know, whenever you're working in, in those areas, there's, you know, we had a lot of situations of shootings and shellings and, and close calls in terms of just missing suicide bombings. You know, it sounds funny, but you rely so much on your intuition. And I, I know that security experts are probably freaking out by that, but you do, you really learn to tap into what your instincts are telling you and to trust the people. And you've got to know that the, you know, my fixers, my interpreters, they're going to know more about what's happening and what, where to go and where not to go than, um, than pretty much any sort of foreign security expert is going to know. So I really have to listen to them and I have to trust my own instinct and balance that with getting a story. Cause I think there is a balance and something I did find as a woman was that they were a little extra cautious of allowing me to kind of go to the front line. And so I had to 
kind of work my spiel up a little bit more to convince them that I, I was going to be okay and I knew what I was doing. Um, but yeah, you really just have to, you have to know what it is and you have to also be, I think, really aware of not putting their lives in danger too. So I, you know, as much as I often wanted to go to a lot of really hairy places, I also had to take a step back at times and go, well, well, this, you know, man needs to, to feed his young children and his wife, and I don't want anything to happen to him because he's out there protecting me. So it's all this sort of balancing act of, of different things. And, um, you know, and I think for me, I have the privilege of, of having, you know, being an Australian and being an American and being able to have those passports and leave whenever I want to. Whereas the people that are living there, they don't have that privilege. They're, they're there and they live it day in and day out. So to me, anything that I experienced, you know, was just, it pales in comparison to, to what their lives are like. So, um, you know, they're the real heroes in this. That's the interesting thing about your book too, is it has such a richness to it. Because you, you talk to religious leaders, you talk to military commanders, you talk to sex slave survivors, there's a lot of individuals that think, I think as you put it in the book, you saw their experiences through the eyes of all these different types of individuals. So it gives you a really comprehensive look at what's happening out there. It's really yeah. mind. Thank you. Yeah, I just, I think it's really important to tap into every mindset. And and with, with that, you know, I, I also interviewed several ISIS terrorists. And I think I think that's a, an important thing because I think so often it's so easy to paint these things as being very black and white. You know, they're, they're religious extremists and that's it. And I just, that is a not the situation that I found. And one of the biggest things that I really learned from that was there for the locals, uh, religion was one of five sort of deciding factors in, in joining these groups. But it, I guess you could say it was a factor, not the factor. And, and so often it was really a matter of survival. So if ISIS comes in and takes over your village and takes over your hospital and you happen to be working at a hospital and that's the only income you're going to get, you're going to keep working at that hospital and be forced to pledge allegiance to this leader and not because you believe in the doctrine, but often because that's the only choice to survive. So I did find that a lot. And I find that that element is very different to a lot of the homegrown terrorism that we get that tends to be sort of born into extremism. And so we sort of see these homegrown terrorists, so to speak, um, and we try to equate them with being the same often as the locals in Syria and in Iraq. And I find that there are really big differences. So it was often the foreigners that were also joining that tended to be a lot more extreme than the uh, than a lot of the, the sort of the lower mid to lower level ranking fighters that were joining. So there are so many of these nuances and I really, I wanted to kind of understand that and, and bring that back to, to an American audience. That's one of the things I appreciate about the book is you're, you're so spot on. People like to make things so, I get it, right? We like fast food stuff. We like things to be simple, but life isn't simple. And nope. uh, these guys were not simple because <laughs> when I looked at them too, like you said, there's all sorts of different types. There's individuals who just wanted to make it through it. I just want to make it through. I got a family. I don't want to buck the system right now. I don't like the system, but I have to go along with this because if not, mm -hmm. I'm dead. My family's dead. Not worth it. Other individuals, you know, you had 18, yeah. 19 year olds who didn't have anything, who, who were looking for identity and they saw yeah. and they found it. And yeah, you make a great point about foreign terrorists. Too. And I also, I also think uh, we tend to overlook uh, the corruption element within, you know, within state actors, within governments. So when people, as we saw in Iraq, 
when the sort of the Sunnis suddenly felt that they were being marginalized um, by by Maliki and by a, a very Shia dominant government, that drove them to the point of of sort of anger and wanting to do something about it. If you have to go to work every day and you have to pay off a policeman at a checkpoint and give him half your salary to get through to get to work every day, eventually you're going to get pretty peeved off about that. So I think. Uh, we also, you know, if we really want to address the root causes, it's not just the ideology. We've also got to look at the role governments are playing, corrupt governments are playing, and we need to stop putting our hands up and saying, oh, we can't do anything to fix corruption. Well, unless it's something that can be really properly addressed, we are, are constantly going to be dealing with this kind of threat, in in my opinion. Uh, that's a great point. And corruption is a big problem down there. I mean, they have a lot of... Um just a lot of tensions. <laughs> I was going to say ethnic tensions there between the, the Iraqis, the, the Shias, the Sunnis and the Shias, as you mentioned, the Yazidis. There's so much going on over there in Iraq. It's so complicated. I mean, they really, what they even offered the idea. I don't even know if it's how plausible or how uh, realistic they even thought about dividing the country up into three areas. I don't even know if they're still even talking about that today, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's still, I mean, the Kurds would obviously love their own land. Yeah. Um, and that was obviously something on the talk. But I think the U.S. is very adamant in sticking to its united Iraq policy, which has been its policy since day one. Um, and so that sort of seems to be the majority, pretty much the entire uh, international community, with the exception of a, a few countries that support uh, a united Iraq. But the you know, flip side of that is, can a, is a united Iraq working? Is it is it working? You know, that is the question. And that is the point that the Kurds will often make um, that, you know, is this really working? And that is uh, that is something I think that is a question that still should be addressed. However, splitting up is also going to come with its own set of complications and bring in, you know, especially if the Kurds were to get their own land, we've got issues with Iran and Turkey and, and other Syria and other neighbors there that, that, you know, may cause a war within itself. So, uh, the question is, you know, what what is going to be the lesser of evils? That's true. I got one more question for you. Since I have you here, and folks, isn't she awesome? She really knows her stuff. I mean, it's great. Get the book, Only Cry for the Living, Memos from Inside the IS, ISIS, ISIS, ISIS Battlefield with Holly S. McKay, M-C-K-A-Y. You can find her on Instagram, Twitter. You can find the book on Amazon. It's already a number one new release, by the way, folks. So definitely an awesome book. Holly, let me get your take on this. Uh, I've talked to soldiers in the past in a couple of years and, and some people from Iraq. The world's changed a lot in the last 20 years. So you have access to a lot more of history. Uh, even they still have access to history uh, over there in certain parts. How much do you hear or see the impact of the past, of the lines being drawn, of Iraq and Iran and all these things, the Balfour Act, all this? Because I've talked to other uh, individuals who work with terrorists in that upper area in Syria and Afghanistan. And for some of those individuals, it's still right here. <laughs> still hurts. Absolutely, yeah. It's still there? You mentioned Sachs-Pico agreement to anyone over like there, and I guarantee you they will want to sit down and they will want to talk to you about it very, with you know, great mm. passion for two hours. And it's something I think that deeply uh, has, you know, has pretty much shaped the entire region. And, and granted, they were very arbitrary lines that were drawn without any real uh, knowledge of, you know, the different groups and, and places like that. And if you even look um, back in Saddam's era, I mean, why did he go into Kuwait? Because Kuwait used to belong to a bigger Iraq. And in his mind, that was still 
his land, um, you know, even though it was not recognized to be by the international community. So if you look at Sykes-Pico and, and those arbitrary lines have a huge ramifications today. And uh, yeah, if we could take back time, maybe we'd do it differently. Um, but, you know, and, and then on the flip side, can you really reshape borders now and what other controversies can they, uh, can that ensue? So I think it's just, it's a complicated situation. And, and I hope, I just love Iraq. I have great respect for the Iraqi people and the Syrians too. And I just, you know, it's, it's terrible to sort of see that the, it's the civilians that suffer and the children that suffer and these endless wars that just go on and on and on. Um, can they ever really come to an end? And I think that's an internal question uh, for the people that live there. And they're the only ones that can, that can bring peace and stability to, to their land. That's a great point. A lot of people don't realize, you know, with Syria, with all the, the issues they're having right now, a lot of them don't want to leave. Some people say, just leave. That's where they grew up. That was their home. That's, <laughs> That's what they were. Yeah. Why do you want to go anywhere? Yeah. And you'll see people that'll they'll leave, you know, a relative safety of a refugee camp just to, to get back to their bombed out home because it's theirs and it's something that belongs to them. Yeah. Amazing stuff. Holly, I could keep you here all day. <laughs> Great. Thank stuff. you so much for having me. Thank you very much for being here. Folks, again, only cry for the living memos from inside the ISIS battlefield. Highly recommend it. Holly, where can we get more information about you and, and uh, your other works are going to come up with? I'm sure you're going to do more yeah. research and more stuff. Where can we find you? Yeah, nice. lots more stuff coming. So Instagram and Twitter, the handles are both at Holly, H-O-L-L-I-E-S-M-C-K-A-Y. So yeah, follow me there and any questions, please reach out. I'd, I'd love to engage more. Wonderful. There you go, folks. Holly S. McKay, make sure you give her a follow and get that book. Hey, if you want to support our show, make sure to share and subscribe. We truly appreciate it. Check it out. Seven days a week, 11 a.m. Pacific time, we have a show. Thanks, everybody. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.